What if after a disaster, the government came to you and said, hey, your house is really not going to be safe in the future. We want to buy you out. Would you do it? Or like Gene Olson in Houston, is home too sacred? I love my neighbors. I love my neighborhood. I really like where I live. My neighbors were fantastic during this catastrophe. They fed me. They had me over. and You know, it's just, it's home. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And in Houston, since Hurricane Harvey, local officials are talking about offering buyouts to homeowners in some neighborhoods. And we're going to get to that later in the show, plus what the Trump administration wants to do with the tax code. But we're going to start in Puerto Rico. The humanitarian fallout from Hurricane Maria is continuing. People need basics. Water, medical supplies, cash. We wanted to zero in on food and agriculture. The hurricane destroyed about 80 percent of the value of the island's crops. Frances Robles from The New York Times wrote about that, and she's been reporting from around the island. We reached her in her hotel in San Juan via Skype. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lizzie. Can you give me a sense? You visited these farms and you've sort of been out reporting. What do things look like and feel like right now? The area in the southeast where a lot of farms are was pretty staggering. You could go to a plantain farm and just as far as your eye could see, there were downed trees. I mean, downed trees after downed tree after downed tree. You did not see one that was up. The other thing visually that was really striking is the regular foliage has been completely stripped. So not just of the leaves, but even of the bark. It looked like there had been a a post-apocalyptic drought. Wow. You reported that the island lost about $780 million in agriculture yield. What does that mean, both in terms of sort of economic exports, but then also domestic food supply? Well, about 85% of Puerto Rico's food is imported anyway. So that is an important fact to have. But one thing that was really interesting is I was talking to the farmers and I said, well, what is this going to mean? They all said the same thing. They said there will be no food in Puerto Rico. So that made me wonder whether in these agricultural communities, that percentage is probably much higher. The the local percentage must be much higher so that this loss to some communities is going to represent a very large percent of what they normally put on their tables. When you talk about food imports, some of those imports are coming from other countries that have also been devastated by storms. I mean, is there any way to know right now what's going to happen to the food supply chain? I think that's really hard to say, especially for me to say, because um, I'm in this cocoon with no electricity and no yeah. phone communications and no Internet. I think obviously someone's going to have to fill that hole. You know, that, that, the food is going to have to come from somewhere. Uh, we cannot let Puerto Ricans go hungry. What's the next step for these farmers? I mean, you describe this post-apocalyptic landscape. What do they do? They said they're going to have to replant all their crops and that it'll take a year, year and a half for everything to grow back. Uh, I talked to this one man in a, in a kiosk on the side of the road who was selling his, you know, yagdia and other local foods. He said he lost $300,000 worth of crops. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to plant it all over again. I'm going to start over. Francis Robles, thank you so much for talking with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for keeping the focus on Puerto Rico. Now we're going to talk with a business owner trying to get back to her restaurant and home in San Juan. 
Tara Rodriguez-Basosa is currently stuck in New York. In addition to owning a restaurant, she also works with farmers, trying to create a more sustainable local system that doesn't rely on imports, something that Hurricane Maria likely made much harder. We caught up with her earlier this week. The first few days were horrible. It's very frustrating uh, for somebody like me who is kind of like, you know, a leader of a pack. And I have my, you know, friends, family, clients, farmers feel very impotent. My business uh, was six feet underwater. So the chef of my business is right now, little by little, trying to get water out and see if there's anything she can salvage. But it is also being looted as we speak. Uh, Right now, I definitely have word from most of my farmers. Everybody lost everything. I have farmers that are in the middle of Utuado right now, and they are rationing food because there's no food. I have farmers that have lost all their house. And so we will all suffer. All types of farmers will suffer. Uh, There is no crop whatsoever right now on the island. I think for the future, we really need to use this as a wake-up call. I have no doubt whatsoever that the farmers and the people that I work with, which includes consumers as well, we are going to get back on track. I think that the more we can focus on getting more of the food produced locally and for local consumption, because most of the food that is exported from Puerto Rico, right, is uh, coffee, mangoes that go to Europe, etc. And we're really not focusing a local consumption plan for food in Puerto Rico. We're starting from scratch. You have to. Uh, I mean, I think some things are short-term things, like, you know, sending food over is great aid. But we have a focus on the soon as possible, the sooner the better, to start cleaning up each farm and each community garden and start growing as soon as possible our food again. That was Tara Rodriguez-Basosa. You can read more of her story on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. This week, the Trump administration and Republican allies in Congress finally laid out their goals on taxes. If we want to renew our prosperity and to restore opportunity, then we must reduce the tax burden on our companies and on our workers. Marketplace's senior reporter Kimberly Adams breaks down five things you need to know about what's happening. Starting with, well, this is not a set-in-stone tax plan. What Republican tax negotiators released this week is more of an expression of their goals for how they want to change the tax code. It even says on the front of the document that it's a, quote, framework for fixing the broken tax code, not a plan. So while this does include answers to a lot of questions about where the GOP is laying down the gauntlet on big issues, it's very light on details, especially when it comes to how they want to pay for cuts. That fun job is being left to congressional committees. Okay, point two, Republicans want to almost double the standard deduction. So the standard deduction is what you take when you don't feel like itemizing your expenses, donations, and other things that might lower your taxable income. Under the framework, the standard deduction would be $12,000 for single filers, $24K for married couples filing jointly. So basically, your income up to those numbers isn't taxed. 
6.3, under the framework, tax brackets would change. Right now, we have seven tax brackets, with those at the very top being taxed at 39.6% and those at the bottom being taxed at 10%. Under this framework, there would only be three tax brackets. The rate would go down for those at the top to 35%. Then there's a 25% bracket in the middle. The bottom bracket would go up to 12%. Now, the Trump administration says that doubled standard deduction and improvements to the child care tax Tax credit will help out those who get that hike at the bottom. To point four, corporations will get a big tax cut. A big complaint about this outline is that, according to most analysts, it helps the wealthiest people and big corporations more than the poor and small businesses. Corporations under this framework would see a 15% tax cut, with the corporate rate dropping from 35% to 20%. It's worth noting here that few corporations actually pay 35% because of tax loopholes and really clever accountants. This would also change how multinational companies are taxed on their foreign profits and let them bring back profits they offshored, as it's called, without extra penalties while they transition the system. And finally, point five, fewer itemized deductions for everyone. The trade-off for the lower tax rates is fewer deductions and exemptions, which the Trump administration says will make taxes more simple for everyone. For businesses, the framework is vague on exactly what they'll lose except for one manufacturing-related deduction. For individuals, quote, the framework ends most itemized deductions. There's not an exhaustive list of what's out, but it does list the popular deductions that will be left alone. For example, mortgage interest deduction, although that will be useless for most with the bigger standard deduction. Also, charitable, retirement, and higher education contributions are safe. Noticeably not on that list is a deduction for state and local taxes. Many expect that to be a big target in the negotiations. That's Marketplace's senior reporter, Kimberly Adams, with five things you need to know about the tax proposal. And if you want to learn more, just go to Marketplace.org. It's been a busy time in the news, but we like to spend a few moments on every show with your thoughts on what we're covering. A couple of weeks ago, we talked with Wall Street Journal reporter Rob Copeland about the essence of LaCroix sparkling water, basically the flavor. No one really knows what's in it. Listeners on Facebook had a lot to say about it. Yuri Litvin wrote, I seriously think they all taste the same. Their flavors, that is. King of cult marketing for sure. Gotta hand it to him. Joanne Holmes is a fan. I drink it and Dasani Sparkling every day. So yummy and a lot easier on the waistline than other options. Joe Drozel had a different take. My palate is not so refined that I can tell the difference between a $6 8-pack of LaCroix and a $4 12-pack of Canada Dry Orange. And Anthony Scavato just had this. I prefer La Whatever Seltzer is on sale. Got something to say? Email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. You can subscribe to our newsletter at marketplace.org. And if you're tuning in via podcast, do me a favor. Leave us a review so other people can find us too. Numbers are at the heart of what we do on this show, in the markets, in our daily lives. So every week, we like to take a look at the news by the numbers. And this week, we've got producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. 
Hit it, Sarah. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... Zero. That's how many dollars it will cost you to use Smartify, a new app adopted by 30 museums to help visitors learn about art using augmented reality. It's sort of like Shazam for paintings. It uses your camera to identify works of art, then tells you all about them. Smartify is already being used at the Met, the Getty, the National Portrait Gallery, and other museums all over the world. 65. That's the percentage of travelers who intend to seek out green accommodations, according to Booking.com. The number of eco-friendly travelers doubled in this year's study. Green travel is certainly getting more popular. McGraw-Hill Construction says that about 25% of all hospitality construction is now green. 58,000. That's how many fans have been showing up to recent L.A. Rams home games. Attendance is down by about 26,000 fans per game compared to last season. If they keep it up, or, well, down, the Rams are on track to have the biggest drop in attendance in the past 25 years. And that's the best NFL team in L.A. Yeah, don't even get us started on the Chargers. In a little while, we're going to talk retirement planning with a man who spent a career thinking about it. But first, one way to get money in retirement sometimes sounds like this. A reverse mortgage loan uses your built-up home equity to give you cash now and when you need it in the future. Pay it back. That's actor Tom Selleck pitching reverse mortgage loans. They're like a traditional mortgage, but instead of a monthly house note, the lender pays you using your home as security for the loan. New rules for these loans start on Monday. The main headline, senior homeowners won't be able to borrow as much. Plus, they'll have to pay more up front. The reason is that one in five reverse mortgages taken out between 2009 and last year are expected to default. That's cost the Federal Housing Authority, which insures the program, $12 billion and puts some seniors' homes at risk. It's a huge deal because you're seeing people that are in their end of life now facing losing their home. They might be homeless, literally homeless, because they owe maybe a quarter's worth of property taxes. That's Jennifer Levy, an attorney at JASA Legal Services for the Elderly. People still need to pay property taxes under a reverse mortgage. If they don't, the lender will pay, then ask for repayment plus interest. Levy says some lenders often haven't made that clear. And basically gave them a misunderstanding that they can live in their home for the rest of their lives without making any payments, and they certainly didn't explain that they could find themselves in foreclosure for something as little as forgetting to pay your property taxes. She says the new rules that cap borrowing can protect seniors from going into default. But on the other hand, they could cut off funds to those who need it. To talk about the rules from the lender's perspective, we have Peter Bell. He heads the National Reverse Mortgage Lenders Association. Welcome. My pleasure to be here. So when you look at these new rules, are lenders uh, going to lose money if if the loan amounts are decreased? Possibly uh, in the near term, but I don't think that's necessarily true in the long term. The consumer's accrual against the home will be slower, meaning that more of their equity will be preserved for a longer duration of time. One question I have is looking at some data showing an 18 percent default rate on reverse mortgage loans taken out from 2009 to, to last year. That's a pretty high default rate. And I guess I'm well, curious. Well, you have to understand what yeah. that default rate means. A default in a reverse mortgage is when a, a tax and insurance payment is missed. And a large number of those are due to the fact the borrower has passed away. So in that period, there is nobody there to pay the taxes and insurance. 
So why, as a lender, would you lend into that market? It seems like one where, um, you know, you've got some risks. Well, that's what the FHA insurance is there for, to protect the lender against risk. Essentially, the lender has to advance the funds that are required under the mortgage to the borrower. And the lender also is required to advance funds for taxes and insurance in cases where the homeowner misses paying those. And then they work with the borrower to get them on a repayment schedule to pay that back. When we talk about this idea of taxes and insurance that seniors who are taking these reverse mortgages out need to pay, do you think that they understand what they're on the hook for? Obviously, one of the big criticisms of reverse mortgages is whether or not people really have a sense of of what they're signing up for. First of all, every reverse mortgage borrower is obligated to go for a counseling session with an independent third-party reverse mortgage counselor. Secondly, these people are already homeowners. Every homeowner knows you pay property taxes. I hear a lot of uh, people saying, oh, well, so-and-so lost their home because they had a reverse mortgage and didn't pay their taxes. Well, if you have no mortgage and you don't pay your taxes, what happens? You lose your home. So that's not really the reverse mortgage at blame. That's the failure to meet a basic obligation of property ownership. You know, one of the things we do on this show is try to connect kind of big macroeconomic concepts to people's lives. And I guess I'm curious, as someone in this business, um, how much attention do you pay to what the Federal Reserve is doing right now? And, And how could that affect your business going forward? Well, certainly our loans... And the amount of benefit that we give to any borrower is a function of what the expected interest rate will be on the loan. So as the Fed raises rates, we do take some element of the market and uh, render them ineligible to get the loan. The reason for that is because their current indebtedness on their house is greater than the amount of money they can get from the reverse mortgage. Do do you see activity right now, you know, people sort of trying to get ahead of the December meeting? Not necessarily ahead of the December meeting at the moment. Uh, Right now, people are trying to get ahead of the October 2nd implementation. Every single reverse mortgage counseling agency around the country has reported that all slots are completely filled. Peter Bell, president and CEO of the National Reverse Mortgage Lenders Association. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's pick up that point about people trying to get in ahead of Monday's deadline. Mary Leo is a reverse mortgage counselor. By law, people who get a reverse mortgage have to talk to someone like her first. And I asked if she's been getting more calls lately. Absolutely. So in a typical month, maybe I'll get one or two calls of folks interested in a reverse mortgage counseling session. And this week, every day, I've been getting four to five calls a day, and we just don't have the capacity to assist everyone, unfortunately. In terms of the income range of folks who are coming in, is it specific or does it vary? It varies a lot. I've counseled folks who are on extremely limited income or maybe without income. Um, Recently, I I counseled a gentleman who had a very successful thriving business and his home was worth, you know, over a half a million dollars. Um, So I see a wide range. Usually my lower income families really need the reverse mortgage to pay off an existing mortgage or to be able to pay for essentials. And then my higher income folks are doing it by choice. You know, one thing I'm curious about, particularly if you're dealing uh, with seniors who, say, have heirs or one spouse in a marriage, how much disclosure is there? I spend a lot of time with my clients discussing 
who else is involved in their lives? Because you need to disclose the reverse mortgage to the folks who are going to be responsible for your home when you're no longer there. When I look at default rates, are, are they high because people don't know what they're getting into? Well, default is confusing in the context of reverse mortgage. So when we say default rate, that means people are falling behind on their property taxes or school taxes. Yeah, I'm curious about that. When most people come in, do they know that they have to keep paying uh, their property taxes? Most of the folks I counsel assume that they have to continue paying their property taxes. But for the folks who have a mortgage payment, a lot of times they have an escrow account that's been paying their property tax bill for them. So the few situations I've run into where somebody defaults on their reverse mortgage and gets behind on their property taxes, it's because their original mortgage payment was paying that bill for them every year, and it just wasn't part of their habit to make that payment on their own as a separate payment. It sounds like these rules, though, were put in place, you know, so that people did not get in difficult financial situations, or the new rules. I mean, what do you think of them? One of the key features of of the reverse mortgage that's backed by HUD is mortgage insurance. And if changes aren't made to sustain that insurance pool, we're going to be without the program. So I'm in favor for any adjustments that can make the program more sustainable and an option for seniors in the future. But everybody should know that there's HUD housing counseling available in every community for every kind of reverse mortgage product. Mary Leo, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much. It was great. If you have a story about your experience with reverse mortgage loans, tell us about it. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org or leave us a message on our voicemail line, 1-800-648-5114. Staying with the idea of retirement, what do you imagine yours would be like? Playing with grandchildren, gardening, volunteer work, golf? I don't know. I'm not really a golfer. Or maybe retirement feels unattainable. We asked how you're feeling about saving for retirement. Here are some listener comments read by the Marketplace Weekend staff. First, Sarah Robbins. Right now, we invest in my husband's 401k, about 11% of our income, and invest another percent or two to a spousal IRA for me. Our plan for the near future is to max out contributions to an HSA account because I've been reading how they are tax-advantaged. And here's what Lynn Miller had to add. My husband's retiring on Halloween. Around five years ago, we bought a small farm approximately five miles from our current residence. This has long been a dream of ours. We've been putting money into retirement accounts since we were in our 30s. And when the cottage is complete, we plan to sell our current home and we'll be debt-free. Between our savings, Social Security, and our pensions, we should be financially comfortable in retirement. If the economy tanks, this might change. On Facebook, Paul Grew said, I tell my students, on average, 750000 in 2017 dollars at age 65 should allow maintained lifestyle. Save 15% from graduation on. And Nick Calder simply says, saving for retirement is a luxury I cannot afford. Nick's isn't alone. About a third of Americans have no retirement savings. None. For a look at retirement saving, we spoke with an expert. Bob Reynolds, CEO of Putnam Investments and Great West Financial. And we started off talking about the shift from a pension system to 401ks and plans like them. I worked in the pension industry when I first got into the business. And uh, interesting point that uh, the pension system defined benefit only covered 30 percent of working Americans. And it 
was very efficient way to provide for retirement if people stayed on the job 25, 30, 35 years. But America changed. The average American has uh, 12 jobs during their work career, and defined benefit does not work in that environment. So hence, back in uh, the early 80s, people start utilizing the 401k feature where each individual could have their own account. And it grew through the years. And again, starting in early 2000, clearly with the Pension Protection Act of 2006, it accelerated it to make it America's retirement system. You know, something I'm curious about, and you've worked in this industry for so long, how do you get people to care about their retirement when they're, you know, 28, 29, 30, and it just seems so fuzzy and far off? Well, what you have is you have, through defined contribution especially, you have the availability to see that money grow before you. And when the plan sponsors involve, more people participate, people contribute more, and the whole goal of these plans are obviously participation, but to get people start contributing, but try to get to the 10% plus level. And if people do participate, save it to 10%, 10% plus level, have a target date fund, they will have more than 100% income replacement at retirement. So the system does work if you take advantage of all these features. Who is not listening to you then? Is it individuals who aren't listening to this idea that the system works? Or or is it companies that should be doing a better job of encouraging their employees to invest? Obviously, one of the challenges that, again, we get into in the book is I mentioned 60% are covered by workplace savings. Yeah. How do we provide this same type coverage for the 40% that do not have it available to them? There was this uh, Employee Benefit Research Institute study that looked to middle to lower income workers. And if they had workplace savings available to them, uh, 75 to 80 percent were participating. That exact same demographic group, if they did not have workplace savings, less than 5 percent are saving for retirement. So there was tremendous advantage to have it available. So part of what we're working on and really pushing Washington on is a feature that allows people that do not have available to them to participate in the same type system today. You know, if someone is listening to this and they are overwhelmed by the jargon, they don't know what a target fund is, they don't know what a defined contribution is, what's the best argument you can make for finding some sort of retirement vehicle and putting your money in it? Well, the whole point of Target Date, it was made to simplify uh, advice. It's package advice. So all you have to know is your age and what year you expect to retire. And then the manager sets up the appropriate asset allocation for you. So if you go in at 30... It's very uh, heavily skewed toward equities. And as you get older and approach retirement, it, the, ba- the balance changes from more equities to more fixed income 
and uh, it's age appropriate for you all the way through your work life. So it becomes a very simplified way for people to invest. I had an interesting conversation uh, with someone in their 20s who said, I don't expect Social Security to be around for me when I retire. What do you think of that? Social Security is a challenge right now because it is a math problem. And when Social Security was first came out in the 40s, the retirement age was set at 65, but the average life expectancy was 62. And currently, it still has a retirement age. It's coming up to 667, but life expectancies are now 82, so it's changed the game. And uh, if there's no change to the Social Security system, by the 2030s, they will have to cut benefits by about 30 percent. So it's the third rail politics, but it's something that will take political courage to go after. To me, it will be there, but changes have to be made in the system. Bob Reynolds, president and CEO of Great West Financial and Putnam Investments. The book is From Here to Security. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Leslie. Thank you very much for having me on. You can listen to an extended version of this interview where Bob Reynolds gets into retirement through the lens of tax reform and how changes need to be made to accommodate more people working in the gig economy. It's all at Marketplace.org. Now that story you heard a little bit about at the top of the show. It's been about a month since Hurricane Harvey. And one question you often hear after a big storm, especially in places that flood a lot, is why not just leave? In Houston, local officials are talking about buying out entire neighborhoods, paying people to give up their homes. Marketplace's Andy Euler was in Houston this week, and he told us about the plan. A couple of weeks ago, that was two weeks after this massive storm, the Harris County Flood Control District, that's the county where Houston's located, it sent 3,600 letters to homes in Harris County that had already been identified as potential candidates for home buyouts in, in years past. And the county encouraged those people to complete a notice of voluntary interest form. Now, as of last week, almost 3,300 homeowners indicated they would like to be considered for a buyout. Now, some of them are among the 3,600 who I know who had already been identified, and many of those are not, actually. So in other words, some of those who signed up might be eligible under current criteria, but they are interested. If if they're not eligible, they're still interested. Government officials say they're trying to move this process along a lot quicker than usual because basically the last thing they want is for people to spend time and money rebuilding just to have officials come in and tell them, look, we the county actually wants to buy this house and uh, we're going to bulldoze it. So in order to make those buyouts happen, uh, the county is asking for a lot of federal money and how quickly that money gets to Harris County that's going to surely influence how quickly these buyouts can actually happen. Now, I met uh, Benjamin Singer um, outside of his house in a neighborhood called Wooden Trails West. It's sort of a strange place to walk around because 
a lot of the people took buyouts after last year's so-called tax day flood. So you'll have a couple of houses next to each other and then you'll have like four or five empty lots. Now it, it, it makes sense because it sits right along White Oak Bayou and it's flooded three times in the past five years. Singer's been been involved and he told me that he's open to the idea of a buyout because he's just getting tired of starting from scratch after his house perpetually floods. We decided to put in an application to see what the, the FEMA would give us. And if it was something that would be worth our while, we would obviously take it. But, and you know, they kind of cut us short for the value of the house and the property and stuff like that. So we declined because obviously around here, this is more valuable than what they wanted to give us. So we decided to stay. But it sounds like at this point, you know, people are sort of acknowledging that their houses may flood again. Um, what do officials in the community do then to to move that process along? Right. I, I spent a, a, basically an entire afternoon with uh, Harris County Judge Ed Emmett. Now, he's been outspoken about these buyouts and, and thinks they need to happen. He stood over a map of Houston and he kind of pointed out particular areas where they're concentrating these buyouts places next to bayous that flood year after year. And now these new developments that, that could be susceptible to flooding because they're, they're just simply downstream. I mean, the reservoirs in Houston, they were going to overflow, so they had to release water. Now, he also admitted, he, w- he was very candid with me, he admitted it's an emotional and uncomfortable question that, that they're confronting people with, asking them basically to just up and leave their home. Say, look, we're sorry, but your home is built in an area where it's going to continue to flood. It doesn't make any sense to continue to live here. Now, he also made a a really important distinction between the kinds of buyouts that Harris County is looking at today. Right now, we have voluntary buyouts. So those are pretty easy. Everybody agrees. If we get to the stage where there has to be involuntary buyouts and you have eminent domain involved, those get to be very messy because it becomes an us versus them situation rather than we're all on the same side. And those, uh, you just basically leave up to the lawyers and it works out, but they don't usually end well. So he's referencing eminent domain where the city could Mm. legally say, we're taking this over. Uh, But right now, we're we're not at that place. At at this point, it sounds like people can stay where they want, even if it is dangerous to live there and they know they're going to flood again. That's right. That's the key kind of distinction. Eminent domain right now isn't in the picture, at, at least it isn't yet. I, I don't think Texans would would take to the idea of of government officials coming in and telling them that they had to move very well. Now, I'll give you an example. Gene Olson uh, lives in a city uh, in the Houston area called Bel Air. It's it's a pretty affluent neighborhood. Most of the homes on her block, she told me, went for more than a million dollars. Now, she bought her home in 1993. She paid off her mortgage, but she luckily told me she keeps flood insurance. Her home has been flooded twice in the last 20 years. Now, her area, it's interesting because her area hasn't been officially targeted. It's its just a couple of blocks away from another area that officials have been targeting aggressively, though. So I asked her uh, what her reaction would be to, to a buyout proposal. There's no other place in Houston I really want to live. I love my neighbors. I love my neighborhood. I really like where I live. My neighbors were fantastic during this catastrophe. They fed me. They had me over and... You know, it's just it's home. That's the thing. It's 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 asking somebody to yeah. to just move away from their home. I asked her what her reaction to the county 
taking her home through eminent domain would be. She had a great sort of Texas response for me, and it, it resonated really well. She said, oh, oh, oh no, honey, that, that dog don't haunt. <laughs> Marketplace's Andy Euler reporting from Houston. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Lizzie. From houses, we're going to turn to roads, bridges, stuff we all use. Remember back in the campaign when President Trump promised a trillion-dollar infrastructure program? And it seemed like private investment and public money could be part of that. Well, our partners over at APM Reports, that's our investigative unit, have been tracking promises, reality, and who stands to profit. Their reporter Tom Shack and I talked earlier this week, and I started by asking him where things stand now. Kind of like stalled in the left lane of a major highway is kind of where things are at right now. The The White House has been floundering around a little bit on this uh, plan, partly because of the tax bill that they've been talking about and trying to revamp yep. the health care bill. And what we're what we're seeing now is actually that the Trump administration isn't even sure how they want to fund this. So in the last last couple of days here, what we've seen is that the president has been backing off of his initial plan, which is to maximize private investment to pay for these projects. And so what would happen is cities and counties would rely on private investment. And then what could happen is uh, toll roads, fees, those types of things. But that's pretty unpopular. Rural Republicans worry about it because they're worried that the private money isn't going to go out to places where there isn't a big population. And Democrats hate it because they're worried that public infrastructure isn't going to get funded in the same way that it's been traditionally funded. So the president and the White House have been pulling back on that a little bit. And now they're looking at direct public investment as a way to do this. So what does that mean? I mean, can they fund this? Where would they get the money? Well, they're probably not going to fund it at the trillion-dollar level that the president talked about, and they're going to need to find the money somewhere. They could do borrowing, which you know a lot of Republicans don't like. They could do tax hikes in terms of raising the gas tax. Republicans don't like that either. So they're almost in this situation where they're going to have to find a way to do it because the president's talked about a trillion dollars to pay for this plan. Now, it wasn't going to be just a trillion dollars in direct public spending, but now he has to figure out a way to do that. Does that mean that the idea of using private money ha- has gone away altogether? No, and part of the reason is this is because that there are so there's so many uh, investors out there who think that this is the solution, and they're really pushing a ton of money in this. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of months ago, the Saudis put. Uh, a bunch of billions of dollars into an infrastructure plan with an investment firm. And what they're looking to do is trying to recapture those assets. So there's money parked there. And there are some states that want to do this. Colorado has been doing it for years. Texas has been doing it for years. Uh, so has Indiana. But in some instances, that these projects are unpopular because they have to rely on toll roads. Because in Texas, they hate these toll roads because they've popped up and accelerated in place of private or public public roads. And in Indiana, there's a highway project out there that's been delayed several years. So there's people who are frustrated in that state as well. What does this mean if you are, you know, hoping to be or were hoping to be on the receiving end of one of these? You thought, great, there's going to be money for my state or cities, you know, airport, road, etc. Well, they're going to have to sit and wait a little bit longer to see what happens here. Um, they could try to fund it on the on their own, but uh, realistically, states would have done that if they could do it. 
As part of your reporting into infrastructure, you also dug into some of the investments and involvements of Elaine Chow, the transportation secretary. What did you find? Well, we found that uh, Secretary Chow continues to hold investments in one of the largest construction materials companies in the country. The name of that company is Vulcan Materials. It's based in Alabama. Now, Chow sat on the company's board of directors in 2015 and 2016, and she collected company stock awards in her deferred compensation plan. When she was appointed transportation secretary, Chow uh, wrote a letter, an ethics letter, saying that she was going to follow the company's board policy and won't cash out her stock in Vulcan until April of next year in 2018. So that means her holdings in the company could rise or fall depending on what happens with this infrastructure bill. So she's hanging on to her stock while she's the transportation secretary. Explain how that works and, and why it's kind of a big deal. Well, it clearly creates a conflict of interest for Chow that some ethics experts say should not be happening at all. And here's why this matters. Vulcan's the nation's leader in selling construction aggregates like sand, crushed stone, and gravel. They also sell ready-mixed concrete and asphalt. Now, all of those things are needed to build roads, bridges, airports, everything else that's essential to this infrastructure uh, boom that would happen if the infrastructure bill becomes law. Now, investors know this. And anytime there's momentum around infrastructure, Vulcan stock spikes. It jumped $17 a share in the days after Trump was elected because, remember, what he campaigned on was that trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. It jumped again when he took office, and then there was talk that you know he was gonna, this was going to be one of the first things that he would do. It wasn't. It jumped again when he told the press in April that he was going to, to accelerate the infrastructure bill, which didn't happen, and again around Trump's so-called infrastructure week in June. Now, after each of those spikes where it jumps up a couple dollars or around that, the stock gradually comes back down to earth as talk of this bill dies off. Now, Chow, in her ethics letter, said she was going to recuse herself um, from any matters directly related to Vulcan materials. But it isn't clear if she ever asked the company for a clear separation. And Richard Painter, a former ethics lawyer in the White House under George W. Bush, said she should have. He said this is a clear conflict of interest because Chow is one of the advocates for an infrastructure bill. She's been out there. She's been by President Trump's side talking about this. And she's also been a, a, a decider when it comes to federal highway funding as well. Tom Sheck is part of our investigative team at APM Reports. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Here on the show, we often ask people in the spotlight, musicians, actors, artists, to tell us about their financial lives and what they've learned in their careers. It's a segment we call the Marketplace Quiz. And this week's guests sat down with Marketplace producer Haley Hirschman. Hey everybody, this is Ronnie Venucci. I play drums in The Killers. And this is Brandon Flowers. I'm the lead singer of The Killers. (laughs) That's right. Ron, I'd like you to fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... Medicine. It can, that's true. Finistride. (laughs) Finistride. <laughs> I think I, did, I, did I say it wrong? I think it's finasteride. That stuff that makes your hair grow. <laughs> Money can't buy you happiness, but it can get you a little hair. All right. Brandon. Yeah. This is a, a little bit of a secret I need you to, to explain. Okay. What, what do you think is the hardest part of your job that no one knows? I'm not a social butterfly, and I'm not the most 
confident person in the world. And so sometimes it takes a lot more than people may realize for me to get up there on that stage and do what I do. And I have a lot of um, reverence for people that have done it before me and have been great at it. And so I think that that's, that might be one of the harder things that people don't recognize about me and my job. What do you do to turn it on? What headspace do you get in? Tell these people. I, uh, I do everything from pray <laughs> to uh, that I won't embarrass myself to um, I've gained confidence over the years because I've done a lot of practicing and a lot of rehearsing. So that, that helps, being prepared. Ron, what was your first job? I was a volunteer at the hospital, and I worked in the histology lab at the hospital, and I ran skin samples and samples of body parts and stuff. At one point, I put half of a, there was a half of a hand, like the last two fingers, in a plastic jar of formula, which is sort of a derivative of formula. They let you do it when you are a kid? Yeah, I was 15. Where did the guy lose his hand? How did he lose it? It was, uh, I don't, I don't know the story behind it, but it looked like it would, it would been burned too. It was, it was really weird. Brandon, real talk. What is your most prized possession? I mean, I think it's okay to say my wife, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hers, and she's mine. Yeah, you have to be careful nowadays what you say. Well, I but know. I think that but I she's think that's tender. Yeah, I think it's come from. I think she's my most prized possession, and. We have been married now for 12 years. It's well pretty done. incredible. And That's like 150 <laughs> years in rock and roll. Yeah. Looking forward to 12 more. Yeah. <laughs> what is the one thing everybody should own, no matter the cost, Brandon? I'm going to answer for you. You got one? Yeah. What Toothbrush. Toothbrush is a good one. I Everybody's was thinking, got though, I don't know, my, my mind went towards like can opener. That's good. You never know. <laughs> You're going to need to open up a can. What advice do you wish someone had given you before you, before you started this career? Hmm. I got a fresh one. I'll give you time to think. You got a fresh one? Go yeah. for it. What do you think? Don't read reviews <laughs> about your album or your live shows. Just don't. Don't. Yeah, you've been reading a lot of them. I always do I don't it. do it. I'll go down the bunny hole too quick, and I'll get all bummed out, and I'll, I'll just get snarky, and that's not good for anybody. Yeah. Uh, listen more. It's, it sounds so simple, but if I, if I just think I should, and I'm still working on this, I just think listen more in every way. Listen more. Talk less. I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. That's Ronnie Venucci from The Killers ending this week's quiz. You can listen to some of our past quizzes with Roxanne Gay, Samantha B, Zoe Deschanel, just to name a few. Go to our website, marketplace.org. And if you have an idea for someone you want to hear take the quiz, let us know. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. And that is the show for this weekend. Marketplace Weekend is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Ballinon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Noren Rao. Sitar Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.
This is APM.